Hi, everyone. Welcome to Refine and Grow with Justin and Lindsay. My name is Lindsay Allen. And my name is Justin Euler, and this is your podcast for proven strategies on navigating and managing work life. So this next topic is something that's near and dear to me, and it's really a topic that gets written about extensively and seems to have some enduring qualities to it, and that's the the age-old conversation of work-life balance. Something I've actually started framing in the last couple of years, and I think it was catalyzed by an article I'd read, but it's it's the fact that work-life balance doesn't really exist. When you spend 80% of your time doing something, it's really hard to have balance between work and the 20%, which is the rest of your life, which in my life includes four kids, a wife, a kitchen remodel, recreational time, rest, sleep, an occasional book that I read. So it's really hard to say that I have balance between work and life, especially when it's you know late afternoon right now as we record this podcast, Lindsay, and I've been on calls since 7 a.m. and prepping since 6 a.m. So there really is no such thing as work-life balance. I think a better way to frame it is setting good boundaries, knowing how to frame your work life and create some separation between your work life and the rest of your life. Making this distinction that an old VP of both of ours used to say, are you working to live or are you living to work? I always admired her because she was always willing to take the time that she needed. And she still ran a great business as well as work remotely and work in alternate work sites and take advantage of the opportunity to do really good work that supported her life, but she didn't die on the altar of work. So that's really what we want to spend a few minutes talking about today. How do you create acceptable boundaries and limits between work and life? And how do you rest? How do you recover? How do you ensure that work doesn't become this all-encompassing, all-consuming activity? That's really our topic for today. Well, I think you had called it previously when we had a conversation to prepare work-life health. And I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that terminology. Yeah. I wanted to add that can be our term as we talk through it work life health, because it doesn't necessarily imply a 50 50 balance, but just that both are healthy. For sure. I think it really rests in this question that I have to ask myself oftentimes. So this definitely is not coming from some ivory tower or coming from a person who's got it all figured out. My wife would tell you that I do not have it all figured out in this department. (laughs) But the question I always ask myself is what defines me? Does my work define me? Does my title and income define me? Are those the defining characteristics of Justin Euler? Are those the things that are going to be written as my epitaph and on my grave? Dang, he was good at working 60 hours a week and burnout was his best friend. And he made a crap ton of money, but he didn't get to do anything with it. And that's really not the epitaph that I want. And so I've really embraced this idea of working to live and doing a good job with the work that I've been given and leading well and managing hopefully well and producing good work quality for my customers and doing work that I'm proud of, but also not having it be the defining characteristic of who I am and what I do and allowing for the freedom to walk away from work and to rest, to recover, and realizing that sometimes the best work I do is sometimes not when I'm sitting at my desk, staring at my laptop, but some of my best thinking is in the shower, on a run, sitting on a beach in Mexico, skiing down the slopes of Crystal Mountain here in Washington State. My brain has the ability to have better and improved creative 
function when I'm rested. So I think that's really the first question is, is what's defining you? Is work defining you? If work's defining you, then you're going to give it a hundred percent and then some of everything you have. But if you can set it as something that enables life, you're able to set some healthy boundaries around that. Yeah, this actually reminds me of a story that I have about when I recognized the importance of this, which a mentor helped me recognize. So when Justin and I first worked together, a friend of mine, Shanae, she was working at the same company as Justin, and she thought I might be a good fit. She knew I was moving to the Seattle area. So she had helped me interview, and I learned a lot from her. And a couple of years after I started working at the same company as Shanae, she ended up leaving and going to another consulting firm. And she wasn't happy with the move. So I stayed in touch with her because we were friends. And I remember going to lunch with her one day and she was again looking for a new job. And I asked her how her interviews were going. And she said that she was explaining in her interviews to people that she was a wife and a mom of two little children and that she needed space to be able to manage both that and work. And she said how important her work was to her, but how at the moment in time, it wasn't the number one priority. Family was the number one priority. And I said to her, you said that in your interviews? I'm thinking like nobody's going to want to hire somebody who says that their family is what they need to prioritize over their job. And she said, listen, this is what I do, not who I am. And I don't want to work for anyone who doesn't understand that. So it's a great way for me to weed out who's not the right. Yeah. Beautiful. I I love that. And that's bold. I mean, that's incredibly bold. It was interesting because several years later than when Kobe Bryant passed away, which was hugely impactful on the world, a clip went viral of him responding in an interview saying, basketball is what I do. It's not who I am. Yeah. So I heard that quote again and it resonated with me all over. I think that's good. Now, unfortunately, though, many of us work for supervisors, for managers, for leaders who don't necessarily think that way. And some of us may even have client work with folks that don't think that way. I can think of a couple excellent examples. I won't mention them on this podcast. (laughs) And so you may be saying, well, that's great, Justin Lindsay. Wonderful. We need to have work-life health. I love that idea. Having said that, I have a boss that texts me on Saturdays. I have a client that makes demands on Sundays. And I just feel like I'm in this perpetual cycle of work that I can't get out of. So some tips and tricks that we have found very, very helpful and have been learned and frankly, things that we've had to practice ourselves and don't always feel comfortable. So I just want to put that caveat out there. Again, we're not experts at this. We've learned some things from some folks over time and we've had to put some things in practice and it sometimes it feels uncomfortable. So the first thing I would just tell you is that work is iterative particularly in our field in consulting, there's, I think it's prevalent throughout much of the white collar world. It's that folks want to do their A game all the time. They want to bring their A game. And so it's got to be excellent, excellent, excellent. And I think what that does is it kind of misses both the outcome potentially that you need to be driving towards. It could be overachieving on that outcome in a really spectacular way. You may have either a client or a boss or a stakeholder that doesn't meet their need. It over and above exceeds their need and they have no ability to really appreciate that A effort. I know some of you are cringing as I talk about this and you're probably thinking to yourself, I would never give anything less than an aid effort, but I think you need to take a step back and go, what's the outcome I'm trying to drive towards? 
one, two, three from last season and the business problem I'm trying to solve and what is going to be the fix for the problem. And that doesn't always demand your A game. In fact, I've put A game effort and had a client that really just needed my C game. That was good enough. But if I were to summarize, it's doing what's needed and being comfortable with that. There's a time and a place for your A game. Most of the time you can get away with B or C and meet the need, fix the problem and exceed the expectations of your customer. Also think about where you are in the process of whatever task you have been assigned. So are you creating a document? Are you implementing a process? Are you implementing a system? Typically step one is a draft. I don't know that you have to do the A plus effort. You need to definitely spend time thinking through what your approach will be, but it's probably in a very rough draft form that you are sharing and socializing to collect everyone's input, and particularly if you're not the decision maker. One way to apply where to give an A-level effort or a B-level effort or a C-level effort that we've talked about previously is to align to what your leader's priorities are and make sure that you're giving an A what's most important to the leader. But another way to look at giving an A, B, or C-level effort is where you are in the stage of what it is you're executing. Shanae, again, had said something to me about, you know, you don't have to put so much time in every single step along the way to get to the final outcome because 90% of that gets thrown away. You have to do the 90% to get to the final 10%, but the final 10% is the A game. That's really a great point. We have the tendency to want to wow and surprise on the first go, as opposed to both taking people through the process and co-creating and drafting and getting directional feedback and input before we finalize. And you're right. If you can iterate, you oftentimes can save yourself a lot of unnecessary calorie burn. You're really, your first point was spot on as well as align your priorities with your boss's priorities and scale yourself appropriately. Just got done working for a boss for the last two years who said, Justin, you need to replicate yourself so that you can focus most of your time on leading and less of your time fighting fires, dealing with getting in the weeds on management details, but you can really take a step back and lead your organization well. I think that's a key piece. Understand your boss's priorities, understand your boss's expectations. And then when you are creating, create iteratively. I was just going to say, and hopefully that takes some of the pressure off of you to always give your A game. And I've gotten feedback when I asked others in the past, they've said, you know, you give so much, Lindsay, you give like 110% at the beginning. And then it feels like as changes need to be made, as new information comes in, it's harder for you to be flexible and change because you've given 110% and then you have nothing left to give. So always giving your A game and giving that 110% for me has circled back to me as performance improvement (laughs) feedback. You know, you need to not give so much that you have something left to give when the time comes. (laughs) I remember that Lindsay well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The next step is, okay, great. Justin, you talk about setting boundaries. How do I do that? And Lindsay, you made a a note here. You say, teach others how to treat you. You inform how someone's going to treat you to some degree by the permission you give them to treat you a certain way. So to put it a bit more concretely, if you answer emails on Sunday from your customer or your stakeholder or your boss, you are training that individual to contact you in off hours. You are teaching them that that's normative behavior and that you will respond. 
without saying a word, you're teaching them that. Without saying a word. So it's not that I never look on email on the weekends. It's not that I never work on the weekends, but I'm very targeted and selective about the work that I do and the emails I respond to. And there are whole weekends where I don't touch my laptop and I set my phone down and don't respond to email or text messages at all. Now, I live in a project-based world, and so there are times and project milestones where it requires my full attention, and I have to give that attention, but that's a once, maybe twice every year to two years that that requirement is there. So I'm very selective, and I generally do not respond. Well, as a rule, I do not respond to customer or client emails after Friday evening around four or five o'clock. And if I do receive an email or a text message, I will respond to them after nine o'clock on Monday morning. Sometimes if it's a customer that I really need to reshape a habit because they've had a consultant or a services person providing them with that weekend response, I will wait until Tuesday to respond to them Mm -hmm. to kind of hammer home the point. So it's not that you're never going to respond on the weekends, but you're very targeted, you're selective, you're intentional, and you get away from always needing to check your email and your text messages on the weekend. You keep your laptop shut and you really learn how to rest and shut down your brain and focus on the being present, frankly, to the Mm -hmm. people and the things around you, even if it's just yourself. Yeah, you should adopt the perspective that people have one to two business days to respond to an email. Give yourself that time and expect that when you send emails to everyone, unless it's one of those rare exceptions like Justin was talking about, where it's urgent and needs immediate response or review. But I think you also teach people how to treat you in your interactions with them. For example, I've been in meetings where we have not actually accomplished anything (laughs) that was work-related. If I run a meeting, you won't see that. I don't mind saying, hi, how was your weekend if we're coming together on a Monday or whatever. We're going to go over the objectives and agenda, and we're going to stick to it, and that's how we're going to run the meeting. And when people have meetings with me, particularly one-on-ones, they do the same. And I've noticed that people sometimes, particularly if you don't have this work-life health, get frustrated in the moment they tend to snap at someone and that changes that someone's opinion. They're going to be less transparent with you. They're going to be weary of how they approach you and when they approach you. And you might not get all the information you need because people have seen how they get treated when they bring up risks or if they bring information to you and they start to become afraid to do it. The last point I would really hit on this topic is that you need to become an expert at prioritization. We talked about expectation setting and that takes practice and that may be a new habit that you need to create. You know, you've got to divest of old habits and you have to create new habits. There has to be something that fills that space when you stop checking your email and stop checking your text messages over the weekend. And that something else should be reading a good book, going for a walk with your spouse, playing with your kids, going to a movie, eating at a good restaurant, find ways to fill the absence of that old work habit with a new life habit that's life generating and life giving. To the final point of becoming an expert on prioritization, you know, most of us can only do one thing really well at a time. We really should only have one to three goals at any given time. We really should only have one to three items on our immediate prioritization list. The only thing that truly has priority is the first thing on that list. 
So it's really knowing how to stack rank what you're working on. Going back to Lindsay's comment about what's important to your boss, what's important to your customer, what is urgent because of risk, what is urgent because of milestone, and being really able to understand what is critical path for your work life right now. What needs to be done versus what can wait and being able to push that off. I will tell you one of the biggest freedoms that I experienced in my life as a consultant is when I realized that I could actually deprioritize some activities, push them, reset expectations with my customer or with my manager, depending upon the nature of the work, and let them know, hey, I can't get to that now, but I can get to that next week. Is that all right? Or I can get to that in two weeks. Is that all right? Mm -hmm. Another way of doing the same thing is to say, well, these three things are my priority and this is why. Which one of these three things would you like me to reprioritize? And then if you want me to reprioritize number one, great. I'm going to make that number two and then two, three, and then three is going to get pushed to next week or the week after. Are you okay with that? And I often find that's a very helpful discussion and it allows you to really create better load balancing of your work and provides more focus and provides you with better boundaries and allows you to really avoid that frustration and that overwhelming sense of everything hitting you at once. And that enables you to shut down, take the time that you need at five o'clock in the afternoon or shutting down for the week and going into the weekend. Right. The big thing with this topic, as with every topic Justin and I talk about, is changing your mindset. That's where you have to start. So if your definition of someone who is a good worker is that they're available 24-7, that they give an A-plus effort to everything, that they don't prioritize and take things off their plate, but they get to anything and everything that someone gives to them, you're never going to be able to experience the benefits of achieving work-life health. So you have to change your mindset and redefine those things. So to summarize this, folks, like Lindsay said, no such thing as work-life balance doesn't exist. You spend at least 80% of your time as a professional working, but there is work-life health and there is setting really good boundaries. There's also really internalizing the fact that you are not your work. Work is something you do. You can be passionate about it. You can love it. It can be something that you're excited to do. And I hope it is, but it's not who you are. Work is iterative. Work needs to be prioritized and you need to become an expert at setting expectations and setting really good boundaries. And like Lindsay just said, it is a mindset shift and it's going to take practice. You're going to have to practice it. And it's helpful when you have a manager or a mentor or a colleague that's really good at work-life health. I glom onto those people. But if you're in a situation where you don't have that kind of mentorship or that kind of leadership or that kind of colleague, you're going to have to step out on this journey solo. But I guarantee once you start to experience the benefits of greater clarity, greater, hopefully enjoyment in your personal life and greater presence in your personal life, it sets you up to have a healthy work life for 40, 50, 60 years and not continually hitting that reset button or that burnout button every three to five years. So yeah, it's tough for all of us, especially those of us who like to overachieve and who really strive to be excellent at what we do. But I would tell you the key to excellence is rest. And you can't build muscle unless you rest. When you lift weights, you tear your muscle and it requires you to rest it. So it repairs. When you're resting, when that muscle is repairing, that's when you're actually getting stronger. Mm -hmm. So learning how to rest and have health in your work and your life. That's all for today. Don't forget to head out to our website to download the tips and tricks worksheet from today's episode, download case studies, subscribe to our podcast and newsletter and more. 
and tune in next week for an all-new episode. Thanks for listening.